I have long been a fan of Charles Schultz and the Peanuts cartoon strip, which includes, as you know, Charlie Brown and Lucy and Snoopy and Linus and many others. In one recent cartoon, Snoopy is sitting by himself and staring off, and Woodstock, the little bird in the strip, comes walking past carrying a very large placard. There's only one thing on this placard. It is a huge exclamation point. In the next frame of the cartoon, uh, Snoopy is facing the other way, and Woodstock comes by again with a large placard. And this one has one thing on it, a question mark. And then in the next frame, same scene, Woodstock comes with yet another sign, and it is a semicolon. And in the last frame, Snoopy turns with a comment. He says, it's hard to know what to believe. I love that. I love that because there are some times and some moments when our belief can be followed by an exclamation point. We are certain, we feel assurance about it, and that is the appropriate mark. There are other times when our beliefs might involve a question mark or maybe even doubt. So that question mark then is appropriate. Other times, a semicolon is best because we are less sure. We're maybe waiting for more insight or more spirit or more faith or more something. So a semicolon is the appropriate mark. As I think about my own faith journey, I know I have shifted from exclamation marks because I was sure and confident, to question marks when I had new and fresh doubts and maybe questions, to semicolons when I knew it was a work in progress and I wanted more information or more faith or more spirit or more something. And then it all goes back again the other way too. One of those areas of shift for me involves the single verse of Scripture that we have today. You may recall that I'm preaching from a single verse of Scripture in these days. Today's verse is from Mark 10, verse 9. It says this, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is the word of the Lord. Let me tell you a bit more about this shift in my thinking related to this Scripture, this belief. When I finished Union Seminary in 1987, there was very little debate about marriage. It was between a man and a woman. As I became familiar with the marriage litany, that which is used at weddings, the language was about a man and a woman. And I thought about performing marriages as a minister. It would be clearly for a man and a woman. But the conversation about marriage has evolved greatly since those days when I was in seminary, and my perspectives have shifted also. 
You know lots about this. If you've been reading the news across the recent weeks, this subject has generated great fervor and great debate from all sides. And then on Thursday of this particular week, a federal judge ruled that Virginia's definition of marriage between a man and a woman is unconstitutional. This subject may create great excitement for you. This subject may create great anxiety for you too. And it seems to warrant some faithful reflection here today. So here's a bit more of my personal story. When I finished Union Seminary, Ginger and I moved to New Haven, Connecticut. I was awarded some money to do graduate study, so I enrolled in another program, another theology degree at Yale Divinity School. One of the formative courses that I took on the campus of Yale was in New Testament ethics, taught by Richard Hayes, who is now the current dean at Duke Divinity School. From teaching that class, New Testament Ethics, Richard Hayes wrote a prominent book entitled The Moral Vision of the New Testament. So in that class, we struggled through many ethical issues and how the Bible speaks and how the Bible doesn't speak. My own major paper in that class involved the complex issue of divorce. In the Bible, Jesus is very clear about divorce. Numerous times in the Gospels, he speaks against divorce. And yet, as Christians, our life and culture have continually evolved on the subject of divorce. Divorce is part of many of our lives. Divorce is invariably part of all of our families. Indeed, our single verse for today, Mark 10, 9, comes in the context of Jesus speaking against divorce. Jesus says that divorce is not what God intends. We, have, we are to have life together. Therefore, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I wrote a paper for that ethics class and for Professor Hayes arguing that while Jesus' word against divorce is very clear and while God may indeed detest divorce, God never stops loving us. Divorce may be part of life, but God and God's love and God's steadfast faithfulness are also part of life. So we seek to live always with God, even with divorce. And we keep loving and helping one another through divorce. It was also in that class at Yale that we had significant debate about homosexuality and the Christian faith. Yale University was a very open community. There were quite a number of gay students in my classes. Yet Professor Richard Hayes held to the idea that homosexuality is not what God intends. In his view, after working through the various texts of Scripture, Hayes, the professor, argued quite convincingly that homosexuality was not what God intends for God's people. So I left Yale and was called to my first church in South Carolina. Homosexuality was not a prominent theme in the church or the town. I had my views, shaped in large part by my Yale ethics professor, and I carried on in faithful ministry, seeking to build up the church and serve God in that town. Within a few years of my arrival in South Carolina, the PCUSA, our larger denomination, continued intensive debates about 
homosexuality and faith. What's faithful for Christians? What's appropriate for officers and leaders in the church? Homosexuality and life in the church became an ongoing and increasing topic. New questions emerged. There was growing debate across the PCUSA. New challenges to former ways of thinking were pressing in. Do we believe with an exclamation point? Or do we believe with a question mark? Or do we believe with a semicolon? I was struggling to discern these things. A few years later, my own faith in life shifted again when we learned that my brother's son was, our nephew, is gay. This encouraged new thinking. Those exclamation marks were moving very much toward question marks, and my own children were growing up and falling in love, and my mind began to shift about love and partners and marriage and family life. Question marks were shifting toward a real desire for new insight and more spirit and more faith and more truth. And this took on clarity and focus when we were introduced to our nephew's partner, who soon became our nephew's fiancé. And as we started having family weddings for our children, we went to the wedding of our nephew and his partner. You never know how things unfold. You never know how God is at work in life, in church, in our midst. My perspective on marriage, my sensibilities about homosexuality were shifting significantly. What was also happening alongside these family dynamics were new and insightful discussions by theologians and scholars in the church who were helping the church think afresh about what the Scriptures really say. See, we're really good at listening to the Scriptures when we're pretty sure we know what they say or what we want them to say. And we're less adept at really listening and struggling with Scripture with sincere issues and sincere faith and life, especially when we might be missing something significant. Here's some things that I have learned. For sure, in my years of ministry, especially in regard to shifting views and perspectives. First, the Bible needs to be interpreted carefully and prayerfully. That's a fundamental tenet of the Protestant Reformation in the 1600s, 15 and 1600s. We have to really look at what the Bible says not just in a verse here or in a verse there, but overall. We have to really listen and we have to open our hearts and commit our lives to life with God. And life is God's people. Jesus reminds us of the greatest commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this sums up everything in the law and the prophets. This is to be our guiding principle. And then when we realize on the subject of marriage, the Bible gets pretty confusing. Marriage in the Bible is so varied because of cultural and social issues of a bygone era. Scripture allows all kinds of things, both within and outside of marriage, 
Some prominent people in the Bible have many wives. Many marriages in the Bible also include concubines, other women who are not married but who share the house and share the marriage bed. Other places in the Bible even discourage marriage. It can complicate faithful life. Certainly marriage is important. And if marriage happens, divorce should not happen. If there's one thing that Jesus is clear about, it's that. He speaks authoritatively on that in favor of marriage and very much against divorce. As you have heard, this is what Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. All of this can be very clear and it can be very confusing. Then there's the issue of homosexuality. The Bible says very, very little about homosexuality. Most folks who know about this can come up with seven passages in all of Scripture that talk about homosexuality. Seven passages. And almost all of those texts do not even relate. Do not even relate to the conversation if we're talking about loving, committed, same-sex relationships. There are two passages in the Old Testament that are really about gang rape and violence. We need to talk about that. That's not what God intends. The Bible is very clear about that. But that's not the subject if we're dealing with and talking about homosexuality and loving relationships today. There are two passages in, about homosexuality that are included in the Holiness Code, which can be found also in the Old Testament in Leviticus, which we generally dismiss when it comes to other topics like what to wear and what food to eat and how we live our lives. Those texts in Leviticus, which are about many things, are very cultic and very cultural And we've turned away from most of that in the Holiness Code as we've moved through the centuries and as life has evolved. And yet when it comes to homosexuality, some folks like to go back to the Holiness Code but only apply the parts that help their argument and not even pay attention to the rest of it. Then there are three passages in the New Testament where sexual practices are on a list of what to be avoided or instructions about the God-centered life versus the self-centered life. God, self. But there remains great debate uh, uh, still about how these words translate between cultures separated by 2,000 years. Mostly, we're not meant to take advantage of other people. We're not meant to abuse one another. That's an important message. We need to hear it. We're also called to life together and life before God and life with God and serving God. So if you listen to Scripture, you have to listen to Scripture. And if you step back and listen to the broad themes of Scripture, what God asks, what God calls us to be about from each one of us is commitment. Commitment to God and commitment to others in ways that bear fruit, in ways that bring about the kingdom of heaven right here in Richmond and across the globe. Commitment to God and to others in ways that bear fruit. So here's how this makes sense to me. In the earliest chapters of Genesis, in fact, chapter 2, verse 18, this is what God says. It's not good for man to be alone. 
I'll make a partner suitable for him. For many of us, that suitable partner is someone of the opposite sex. But for some of us, our suitable partner is someone of the same sex. This is what I've learned firsthand some years ago from my nephew. He and his partner have brought such joy and love to our whole family. They not only got married, like my kids have done, they have also adopted two kids and are proving to be the most loving and able parents. And they are wonderful parents for children whose lives would have been far less than enfolded into the lives of this loving, committed, gay couple that adopted them. So many other people that I know, many of you in this sanctuary today, have beautiful, life-giving relationships, marriages that reflect love and joy and commitment and care. Most of these are heterosexual marriages. Some of these, however, are same-sex marriages, relationships, partnerships. These are marriages and partnerships that thrive and give life, and they thrive and give life even when society is pulling against them and has been for a long time. These are marriages rooted in love, and commitment that reflect the very best of what faithful life is about. Loving God and loving others. Making the world a better place. Extending care and hope and light, especially to the less fortunate. Moving the world toward the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus cares most about. The Bible teaches us that we are created to live in partnership. With God and with each other, we're created to have families and wholeness and hope. And that is true for people who are gay and people who are straight. God loves love. God intends love and life. And we need to encourage that. I've learned that firsthand. That certainties about life And marriage and love and faith may not be so certain. I've learned that God often has bigger and broader plans for all of us. Plans that generate more life and more love and more peace and more hope and more wholeness. We have too often been too sure or too closed to see or know or experience all that God can do. We've been too closed. Thankfully, God keeps working on us, pushing us, challenging us, calling us to deeper and broader and richer meanings of love and life and partnership and marriage. It's all about the emerging kingdom of God. I'm talking about all this today in hopes that these reflections are faithful ideas and that these Faithful ideas might help all of us, especially as we find ourselves thinking about and talking about marriage and constitutional amendments and what is right and how to move forward as a society of equality and justice and life, which is what God cares very much about. 
I'm talking about all of this too because the church has for too long been confused or been silent. We have alienated far too many people who have overheard an emphasis on a few verses and missed the message of inclusion and hope and life and love that Jesus comes to bring. I'm talking about this because too many anguished souls have been driven away from our congregations or perhaps driven away from life itself by the personal condemnation they have heard or keep hearing from churches. I don't think such condemnation is what God intends. Jesus says what God has joined together Let no one separate. God draws lots of people together. God draws couples, both gay and straight, together. It's for love. It's for life, better life. God loves love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. God is a God of love. God wants to bring about the kingdom of love and hope and light and peace everywhere to all people. And one final point, just to be clear. This is not about fitting in with popular culture. This is about proclaiming and participating in the emerging reign of God. The amazing, welcoming, hopeful love of God that intends to cover the earth. This is about encouraging all people in the ways of loving God and loving others that love, love can prevail here, near here, and everywhere. That love can prevail, especially over hatred, especially over judgmentalism, especially over condemnation and pain and suffering. This is about seeking to become all that God calls us to be, people who embody love and people who embody commitment and justice and hope. That is the kingdom of God. That's what we're striving for. And we're called to be a part of it, part of its emerging in how we live and how we love and how we function. May it be so. Alleluia. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we believe. Help our unbelief. And show us the ways of love and life following Christ our Lord. Amen.